take a look at the back of your notebook. I want to call your attention to some things on there before we pick up at page 8. This has uh, some announcements for things that are, are coming up. And the first two there have already occurred, but each Wednesday you see the third bullet there at 7 o'clock, not here but at Patrick Henry Middle School. We have a full complement of ministries that go on. And so I wanted to make you aware of that. Uh, these ministries are for all ages, for uh, kids, for teens, and for adults. And you see the three classes that we offer for adults. So this will simply help you advance in your knowledge of, of God's Word. And that's why we provide it. It's, we call it our Community Institute. But you don't have uh, homework and you're not graded and all of that. So don't let Institute scare you. But uh, if you could come, uh, it would benefit you, I think. So I just wanted you to be aware of it. 7 o'clock each Wednesday, Patrick Henry Middle School, which is on Hall Road, just about uh, a mile from, from here. And then I also wanted to, to point out to you the hayride. You see it says Friday, October 14th, about midway down. That would have been this past Friday. But because of uh, water uh, at the home of Tom and Tammy Burkhart, where we're holding the, the, uh, the hayride, uh, we did not have it this past Friday. It's going to be this Friday. So this Friday at 6.30, all of the information listed there uh, is still correct other than the date. So it'll be the 21st this Friday instead of the 14th. And if you need a map to Tom and Tammy's place, those are available at the uh, information table over by the uh, windows. And there's also a sheet there for you to put your name uh, for an item to bring, cider or donuts or something like that. If you can't bring anything, we'd, we want you to come anyway. We always have plenty of stuff. But if you can, there's a list there for you to sign up. So please plan on coming this Friday. We would love to have you for that. And then keep an eye on those other items and those that apply to you. Uh, we would love to have you take advantage of those. All right, page 8 in our second session of our six-week series called Making Peace, How to Overcome Conflict. At the top of page 8, we say our response to conflict should not be purely practical. That is, I, I just want the problem solved. Now, of course, all of us who are engaged in conflict desire to have reconciliation, desire, desire to have peace, desire for it to be solved. And many times it, it can be solved. But notice I say in that second line, we cannot guarantee the outcome. Because the outcome depends on two parties, not just you. And so cooperation from the other party with whom we are at odds requires their control. And, of course, we can't ultimately control that, though we want to grab people by the lapels and do that, don't we? And that's why the Bible very realistically then says, as is quoted for you there, Romans 12:18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. So notice the if it's possible, as far as it depends on you qualifiers, recognizing the truth that it requires two people, two parties, in order for true reconciliation to take place. Now, if both parties in your particular ongoing antagonism are here, and you take the counsel that's dispensed over these next now five weeks, then true reconciliation can, can occur. But if you have one party that's not cooperative, and they are not going to have then true, recon, true reconciliation. But still, even with that, even without the cooperation of the other party, notice the last sentence. We can always accomplish God's good purposes in our lives, 
in the midst of any conflict, even those that remain unresolved. Now, how so? And that's what I'd like to talk about. How is it that good purposes can be accomplished even in a situation where one of the parties is not cooperating? And let me get at it this way. You all have heard the phrase, knowledge is power. That's, that is definitely true. It used to be more true than it is today. Now, here's what I mean by that. Back before the advent of the Internet and the, what's called the information age, the information explosion, or what some have called the democratization of information, that is, everybody has access to it. Back before that, which has just happened in our lifetimes, of course, prior to that, knowledge, information, was often very privileged. In order to get access to it, you had to be able to afford large volumes of books. You had to be able to have the time to go to particular places to, to learn. Information was privileged, but now we live in an age where information is democratized. So knowledge is power, but that used to be more true in general than it is, than it is now. But I want to make a couple of very important observations about that. One is that knowledge or information is not the same as wisdom. You see, the Bible teaches that wisdom is the application of knowledge. And that's why the Bible will say things like, The fool has said in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool. Now, why is the person who says there is no God called a fool? Not, they're not called ignorant not called stupid or some other pejorative, foolish. Because foolishness is, now get this, failure to apply what you know. And so the fool knows that there's a God, but refuses to acknowledge that. And so it's only the fool who says that there is no God. Conversely, the wise is the person who takes what he or she knows and then applies it to the situations of life. Knowledge, then, is information. Wisdom is the application of that information. Foolishness is failure to apply the information we've been given. So knowledge is power. That used to be more true than, than it is today because everybody has access to information now, lots of it. But access to information does not make us wise. We're going to see what it is that makes us wise in, in, in just, a, just a bit. So information does not equal, equal wisdom. And secondly, there is a category of knowledge that only the wise can process. Let me say that again. There's a category of knowledge that only the wise can process. Now, what do I mean? If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If not, just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But it says something about this issue of information and the ability to actually appropriate it, apply it. First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. The man without the Spirit 
does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Here's why. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You have two categories of people given here. You have the, the foolish person, and then Paul who wrote this goes on to describe the spiritually discerning one as, as the wise person. And the difference between the two is the one has the aid of the Spirit and the other does not. They can therefore both, now get this, both can look at the same set of facts. Same set of facts and interpret them completely differently. And so as it applies to the Christian message, the one without the Spirit can look at the statement, Christ died for our sins. And he can process that intellectually. Somebody named Christ died. I mean, this is how he processes it. Somebody named Christ was killed and thought he was doing that for other people. That's the way he or she looks at it. The person with the Spirit takes that statement of truth, Christ died for our sins, and not only can intellectually process it, But because they have the Spirit, they can also apply that. There is a knowledge that only the wise can apply. There's information that only the wise will make use of. And that's because some have the Spirit, the Bible teaches, and some some do not. Now you say, but the person I'm in a dispute with (laughs) is in this room. They're sitting next to me. And I think we both have the Spirit. So now what? Now, it's funny on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a very, very serious issue. Because refusal to be a peacemaker is evidence that one does not have Spirit. Refusal, I was asked to repeat that. And somebody's repeating it to the person next to them, so no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Refusal to be a peacemaker is evidence that one does not have the Spirit. Do you remember the fruit of the Spirit? Includes love and joy and peace. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the who? Peacemakers. For they shall see God. Now I say to you, friend, before we move on, if you're someone who has refused to reconcile in a relationship, please, please understand the seriousness of that. God calls us to peace. And those who have the Spirit, the Spirit of peace, understand what God has said, not just intellectually, but spiritually. They accept that. They welcome that in the language of 1 Corinthians 2.14. Unlike the foolish person, foolish because they don't have the Spirit. And if you claim to have that and you're refusing to do that, then as a child of God, what I am saying to you now should resonate with you. And you should recognize the need to acknowledge that and to seek forgiveness for that. The good news is, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, says the Bible. So there is a, there is a category of, of knowledge that can, only be, that can only be applied by the wise. Those that are wise by virtue of having, having the Spirit. Now, why is that? The Bible says that, 1 Corinthians 2.14. There is the wise person, the foolish person. The difference between the two is the presence of the Spirit in the one, not in the other. But why? What's the history of that? How did we get to a point where you've got people who have the Spirit and people who don't? And thus, people who can make application of what they know and those who can't. How do we get here? Very quickly, I want to remind you that this all started in a garden paradise. And God made the first man and first woman. And God gave them instructions regarding who they are, who he is, and what his purpose is for them. Who they are, who he is, and what his purpose is. To put it another way, some of you have heard me say, God originally gave the first man and woman an orientation to his world. He oriented them to who they are, who God is, why God has them here. He gave them explicit instructions about what they were to do, and he gave them one thing they were not to do. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. In the day you do, you will surely die. You know the sad story. They did, and yet they lived for physically many years after that. So why didn't they die? And the Bible teaches they did die spiritually. They died spiritually because death in the Bible is separation, and they were separated spiritually now from the God who made them. Eventually, they would now, because of that, die physically, as do all of their children, which means separation of the spirit from the body. And those who are never reconciled to the God who made them will experience final death, everlasting death, which is eternal separation of the individual from God. So death means separation. There's three kinds of it in the Bible, spiritual, physical, and eternal. And they experience spiritual separation, spiritual death from God. And as a result now, cut off from the relationship with God, God's Spirit, such that they can now interpret God's world accurately. So now they get knowledge, but they can't acquire wisdom. They're given this orientation, but because of sin, it degenerates into disorientation. God tells them who he is and who they are and what his purpose is, and now everything becomes confused. Our purposes are confused and our relationships are confused, and everything is disoriented. And as a result of that now, their progeny, their children, us, come into this world. Every baby comes into this world in this disoriented condition, separated from God, and in need of reconciliation with God. So this is how you now have people who can have knowledge but no ability to apply it. They don't have access to wisdom unless they first obtain the Spirit. Now, for those who have the Spirit, 
Here's how you then, with that background, here's how you then, in any relationship you're involved in, any tense relationship, antagonistic relationship, unreconciled relationship, here's how you can pursue wisdom in the midst of that, no matter what the other party does. So I've given you the warning that if you're not a peacemaker, then analyze your relationship with God through that. If you are somebody who desires peace, but the other party will not cooperate, how can you still fulfill God's purposes even though the other party doesn't cooperate? How can that happen? Here's how. I want to give you some stuff you know and can apply because you have the Spirit that they don't know. Don't care about. Don't accept because they don't have the Spirit. So let me give you some things you know that they don't, all right? You know why. You know why God allows trouble into your life, don't you? What, what is the purpose for which God does everything, everything? The good, the bad, the ugly. He does all of it for his glory, right? And you know that. But you not only know that, but because you have the Spirit, you accept that. So you know something that apparently this other person does not. They have no ability to process the fact that God is at work even in this difficult situation. And so they're amazed at how you are able to maintain a level head, equilibrium, not get thrown off your game, even though they act crazy. Like, what is it with you? I know God's at work in this. Come what may, I know God is is working to receive glory and he's letting me be a part of that. That's a cool thing. You know, and as I hinted at last week, it drives people who are trying to drive you crazy, it drives them crazy. Imagine being Paul, who wrote a number of the books in your New Testament, and he's in jail. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard for no other crime than preaching the good news of Jesus. Well, what would most of us be doing? You know, we'd be wigging out. And Paul's not wigged out, is he? Four chapters of the book of Philippians. Those four chapters, that short letter, he wrote while chained to a Roman guard. And he says in the first chapter, it's all good. This is my paraphrase. It's all good. And here's why it's all good. (laughs) Because as a result of me being chained, all of these guards have had to hear the gospel. I'm not the one in chains. They are. They wish they could get rid of me. God is using me in the midst of this difficult circumstance to bring glory to Him. In chapter 4, He is able to say, Be joyful, rejoice. And again I will say it, rejoice. Do not, he says, be anxious for anything. The guy is chained to a Roman guard. He goes on later in chapter 4 to say, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether rich or poor. 
I can do, verse 13 of chapter 4, all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I'm just here to tell you that drives your opponent crazy. But why? Because you know something. What do you know? You know why. Why is whatever is happening in my life happening? Ultimately to redound to the glory of God. You know that, and apparently they don't. So you know why. Let me tell you some other stuff you know. You know why, and you also know them. You know the person with whom you're at odds. And you know that person better than he or she knows themselves. Really? Where did I get this profile of this person? Well, the God who made them wrote a book about, about them. And a book about us. And he tells us what the deal is. He tells us why it is that this person is so antagonistic, can't even know themselves, let alone know the God who made them and the orientation that he has for them in his world. They're in this disoriented state, and it causes all kinds of trouble for them. And you know that. And that knowledge is power in this relationship. I'm going to show you that from the Bible in just a second. But just as an illustration that many of you are familiar with, the Lord Jesus himself, he had plenty of, of opponents, didn't he? Plenty. But he knew the deal with all of them. You notice Jesus doesn't get rattled? He's on trial before Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him. And he says, you're the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus says, did you learn that all by yourself? Or did someone tell it to you? Thou sayest. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, we should follow Christ's example. When he was persecuted, he did not retaliate in kind. Why? Because Jesus knew the deal. He, knew, he knows Pilate better than Pilate knows Pilate. You say, okay, he's the God-man, though. Seems to be an advantage there. What about me? What do I know about the person with whom I'm at odds? Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. And here's what the Bible says about all people who have come into the world, sons and daughters of Adam, in this disoriented state, and now the effect that it has on them and the way they see God and themselves and the world. Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thinking became futile. Their thinking may have, may have a high IQ associated with it. But they still can't process it properly. This has nothing to do with intellect. This has nothing to do with IQ. I can't process it because I'm missing the element, the, the element of the Spirit of God that allows me to have lenses to see the world as it is. And absent that now, their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, 
They became fools, says the Bible. Notice the word. Claiming to be wise, claiming to not only have knowledge but be able to apply it, the Bible says in actuality they don't have the necessary ingredient, the spirit, to apply the knowledge that they have. They knew God but glorified him not as God. Back in verse 18, in introducing this, this is what Paul says, the wrath of God, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who do this. They suppress the truth. So here's what the natural person in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the one without the spirit, does. They have access to knowledge, but they don't apply it. They suppress it. It's a spiritual problem. And it can only be spiritually fixed. And you know that about the individual. You know that about them. Now, this has a number of them practical effects. Why does this person treat me so horribly? It's not you. It's the problem they have, isn't it? What do they need? A solution to the spiritual blindness that keeps them in this disoriented and spiritually blind state. So you know them better than they know themselves. Here are the three things you know about the person without the spirit that they don't know about themselves. Okay? Here they are. You know that they know God. You know that they know God. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Everybody knows there's a God. Although they knew, and it literally says the God, they glorified Him not as God. They know God. They know there's a God, but here's the second thing you know about them. They don't want to know God. You know that. They know God, but in their natural state, they don't want to know God. And then thirdly, they are rendered fools. And I don't say that to be unkind. That's the Bible's language. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They know God, don't want to know God, and thus are fools. Now, knowledge is power. You know that. Then about the person who refuses to reconcile. If they are, if they are recalcitrant in, in admonitions to reconcile. Over and over, it's an indication that they do not have the Spirit of God. And then what do you know about them? You know why this thing is happening, but you also know them better than they know themselves. And then thirdly, you know this. You know why it's happening. You know the individual better than he or she knows his or herself. And thirdly, you know the end game here. You know the end in this situation. Yes, it's to bring glory to God. That's why it's happening. But that's going to be mediated. God's going to receive glory. That's going to happen through Him doing some stuff in you. And you know the end. And where are we told that? In James chapter 1. Let me remind you of what the end game is. James chapter 1. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials, adverse circumstances of various kinds, of all sorts, including this pain in the neck person. Because those trials can be things or they can be people. But consider it pure joy whenever you face adverse circumstances of varied kinds, of people and of situations. But why? Why should you consider it that? Here's what the next verse says. Because you know. That's why. Because you know. You know the end game. This is what you know that other people don't. And not just information, you have the spirit to process it. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. God is active in this thing, and in this trial, He is testing your faith. Anybody at Community Baptist Church know what the word faith is in the Bible? Faith means what? Faith is a synonym for what? Does anybody know this? Thank you. If no one could answer that, I don't know, I would despair. The word translated faith is also translated belief. The testing of what you believe develops perseverance. You see, those, those situations are times that really do test, do I really believe this? Right? Don't they? Do I really believe God is who He says He is? And who I say I think He is? Do I really believe Christ is reconciling all things to Himself, even in the midst of this difficulty? The Bible says that. I say I believe that. Do I really believe God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose? Do I really believe that? I'm being tested with that. And you know that. You know that the testing of your faith works perseverance. That is endurance. Because as I pass this test, and God shows Himself, as He always does... (laughs) to be absolutely who he claims to be, the next one that comes along, I am stronger for. It develops endurance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. What's God's end game? To make you mature in the midst of this difficulty. And then it says this in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, and he will grant it. Notice, if you lack wisdom, that is. In the midst of this, if you are struggling to take the knowledge that you have, you know that the testing of your belief develops perseverance, and that perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking. You know all that. But the truth is all of us waver sometimes in the application of that. Let him or her ask God, and God will grant you wisdom to apply what you know and you can do that and you want to do that because you have the spirit so knowledge is power and what you know in the midst of this difficult situation 
You know why it's happening ultimately to the glory of God. You know more about the individual with whom you're at odds than they know about themselves. And you know God's purpose is his end game for you. The means by which you're going to bring glory to him is that you're going to mature and persevere through this testing of what you believe. Now, page 8, in the last two minutes. We have 12 minutes. And page 8 at the top says, conflict provides opportunities. And so I went through all of that to try to explain to you what the next few pages say. That in the midst of whatever conflict you are in, if you have the Spirit of God, then you know these things, and this knowledge then is power that translates into opportunities for great things to happen, no matter what the other party does. It's our hope and our prayer and our desire that there would be reconciliation, but you can't control that. But even when the other party doesn't cooperate, great things can happen in the midst of this difficulty because of what you know. Conflict provides opportunities, too, and then they are listed for you on the next few pages. Glorify God, page 9, to grow to be like Christ, opportunities to serve others. I encourage you to, to just read those, but I don't need to belabor them, but if you'll take a look at page 11... I want to, wanted to encourage you with the fact that this conflict, even if the other party is not cooperating, provides opportunity. But now, I want to focus in, in our remaining time, and then we'll continue next week, looking at how it is that you can deal first with the one thing that you can control, or the one person you can control, namely you. And we'll start there, and then we'll see what the Bible says now, having dealt with myself, how I can then approach the other party for reconciliation, okay? But I'm letting you know at the outset, even if the other party doesn't cooperate, you know things that will see you through this. Conflict starts in the heart. And it starts in, it starts in your heart. You see, there would, be no, there would be no conflict if there weren't some agenda in your heart that this person is thwarting. There would be no conflict if there were not an agenda in your heart that this individual is thwarting. There's something you want. There's something you desire that they ain't doing. And because they're thwarting that now, we react with hostile words, actions, conflict. And it all begins in the heart. Let's see that from Scripture. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Where does it come from? From the heart. James is very explicit about it in James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And when it asks the question, don't they come from your desires, it's rhetorical. They come from your desires that battle within you. Now, it's important for you to see this. Notice that James does not say this. He does not say 
don't they come from your evil desires? They just come from your desires. And if you don't have your agenda met, somebody might get in trouble. And it might be a good agenda. So let me give you a few. I come home from work, let's say, you come home from work, and the kids are going crazy, and the house is a mess, and the whole way home you've been thinking about how lousy it's been at work and what a rough day it's been, and you can visualize in your mind kicking back in the, in the uh, lazy boy and having some peace and quiet. So in your heart, you have developed a desire for peace and quiet. Now, is peace and quiet a, an evil thing? No. It's a good thing. But you desire it, you want it. You get home, it ain't there. And you say, bless you, my spouse. <laughs> and my dear children, for granting me this opportunity to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. <laughs> But that's, that's probably not what we say, is it? We get ticked and we respond and we fight and we quarrel because of our desires that war within us and they're not always evil desires. They're sometimes desires for good things. And so you all have heard me say that these desires then can become idolatrous when we want them too much. So it can be a good thing, a good desire, but I want it too much. How do I know that I want it too much? Here's how. When I'm willing to sin in order to get it. And when I react that way, and you fill in your way, <laughs> when I react that way to even the absence of a good desire being fulfilled, that thing has become more important to me than pleasing God. I just want my children to behave. So do we. <laughs> we all want our children to be. I just want my kids to respect me. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. I just want my husband to be a spiritual leader. Is that a good thing? You go down the list. All good stuff. And all stuff that you can want so much that you're willing to sin in its absence. And the Bible uses very harsh language with regard to that. It says in verse 4, you see in the middle of page 11, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, you adulterous. Now, why that kind of language? Because you're supposed to be married to Christ. We're supposed to be the bride of Christ. That's the language the Bible uses. But then someone or something becomes more important than that in this idolatrous desire in my heart. And so I'm playing the adulterer or the adulteress when I leave Christ for this person or thing. But then it says, verse 5, Do you think the Scripture says without reason, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now that word envies... It's just a sh another word for desire, but a very strong word. And then James adds not just the strong word for desire, 
but desires intensely, envies intensely. To put it another way, James is saying, here's the good news. There's actually good news in verse (laughs) 5. That God has a dog in this fight that's going on in your heart. You have a battle in your heart to develop an idol. And yet, if you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit He has caused to live in you envies intensely. He wants to capture your heart toward Him rather than toward your idol. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to, to the humble. And so where does it start? It starts in my heart. What can I deal with? I can deal with me. How can I do that? By thinking about what I know. I know why this is happening. God's going to receive glory somehow. I know the individual that I'm at odds with better than they know themselves. I know the end game, the immediate uh, method that God is going to use to bring glory to himself. And that is to develop perseverance in the testing of what I believe such that I become mature. If I lack wisdom in that, ask God, he will grant that. So how do we deal then with idolatry specifically? We're going to look at the progression of an idol and see what the Bible's remedy then is for that. Going into or in the midst of the adverse relationship, knowing the things that I've said, understanding that it's an inside job and therefore your focus is not to be upon them, you've got half the battle there. But then understanding how this idol develops in my heart. I want this thing. It might be a good thing. But here's how it progresses. And becomes then a controlling idol that affects how I talk and my attitude and my actions. What's the definition of an idol? Anything apart from God that controls us and that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. And we will flesh that out then beginning next week. Let me end this way. If you'll take a look at page 6. Turn back to page 6. And you see the chart there that we saw last week? The slope, page 6. And on the left side of that chart, you've got a pie wedge that goes out to the left with three things, and those are called escape responses. See that? Now, those, those who engage in escape responses that we looked at last week, those people are, you can write this next to that pie wedge, peace fakers. Peace fakers. You're faking it. Peace faker. Why? Because I, I get away from the situation just because I want peace. I don't want to, I don't want to address it because I want peace. That's peace faking. On the right side, you've got another pie wedge there with attack responses. And people who engage in those are peace breakers. And in the middle are the responses that we want to have. And the people who engage in those are peacemakers. And so the question is, Which one are you, a peace faker, a breaker, or a peacemaker? And how will you become a peacemaker? We're going to look at that next week. But for now, understand this. Remember in creation, God gave an orientation, told them who he is, who they are, and what he expects of them. 
Sin caused disorientation. Nothing fits. They've got lenses now that distort their interpretation of God's world and themselves and their circumstances. But here's the great news. God is engaged in his world, in the here and now, in reorientation. And it's God's desire to reorient your heart toward him, toward others, and toward the world that he's placed us in. We're going to see how that happens next week. Let's pray and we're done. Okay.